Hey, Christ community, uh, greetings to all of you, to our 15th Street campus and our West Campus, our Traditions venue. Really, really glad that all of you are here. So let me just ask a question to kind of get us started here in this message. If, if your life had a theme song, what would that song be? If your life had a theme song, what would that song be? I asked this question on Facebook uh, recently, had lots of varying responses, uh, happy time, don't blink, uh, live like you were dying, the dance, if I only had a brain, uh, above all, great is thy faithfulness. Lots of great responses. Now, the reason I asked that question is because of an experience I had recently um, seeing the movie The Greatest Showman, uh, which I love. Music is fantastic. And I found myself listening over and over again in, in the car uh, on Pandora just to the, to the music of this. And so one day as I was listening to the words of one of the songs, I, I realized this song is sort of my life story. It's kind of my theme song. I'm not necessarily happy that it is, but it just is. So let me read just a few words, uh, the lyrics of this song. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough for me. Never, never, never enough for me. You know, that's sort of the story of my life, this underlying feeling that I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. The bar always gets raised. And so for the first 30 years of my life, I was basically a workaholic. I was desperate to prove that I had what it takes to make uh, sure, you know, make it my goal that this church is going to grow. Not only that, I was overly competitive and intense. I, I was not a very good husband or friend. I struggled with vulnerability with people. And I ended up hitting an emotional and, and physical wall. And in that place, I began to realize that there was something in my life and my heart that was at the root of all of this unhealthy stuff. And that something was shame, shame. I like Dr. Brene Brown's uh, definition of shame. She writes that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of loving and belonging. It's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of loving and belonging. That captures the essence of shame. It is not simply guilt. Guilt is feeling bad for something that we've done. Shame is feeling bad for who we are. It is this intensely painful feeling deep within that there is something defective about me. And because of that, I'm not acceptable. I'm not capable. I don't fit in. And so what I began to discover in this journey, my own journey, is that shame was not simply my struggle, my issue. It is a universal human experience that all of us struggle with, men and women, young and old. We all struggle at some level with the these feelings of inadequacy. We all wonder, am I enough? Am I capable enough? Am I strong enough? Am I attractive enough? Am I intelligent enough? Am I witty enough? Am I acceptable? Am I worthy of love? And it is the voice of shame that continually answers those questions with a resounding no. You're not enough. 
You're not a good leader. You're not a good mother. You're not a good friend. You're not a good Christian. You're not a good, you fill in the blank. And here's the deal about shame. It is like tar to our souls. Shame is like tar to our souls. It negatively impacts every area of our lives. And yet often we are unaware that it's there. So we are in this teaching series in which we are, uh, we're, we're, we're tenaciously taking shame out of hiding. That's what we're doing. We're tenaciously taking shame out of hiding. We're calling it out so that all of us can see the impact that it's having upon us, which then allows, enables the spirit of God to, to fill us and set us free from our shame so that we can walk in wholeheartedness. That's the goal, wholeheartedness. So last week and this week, we're looking at the example of someone in the Bible who was torn apart by shame. That person is King Saul in the Old Testament. God chose Saul as a very young man to be the first king of Israel. Saul had everything going for him. He was gifted. He was strong. He was handsome. But from the beginning of his reign, Saul just kept making one bad decision after another. He experienced one failure after another. So what was Saul's problem? For years, I heard people say that Saul's problem was disobedience. He just struggled to obey God. But a few years ago, God opened my eyes to see something in Saul's story that I had never seen before. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has once again disobeyed God, God's clear command. And so God confronts him. And this is what God says. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Saul was little in his own eyes. Even though he was king of Israel, he saw himself through the lens of never enough. Never enough. Saul's ultimate problem was not sin. His ultimate problem was shame. And that shame impacted every area of his life. And it will do the same thing in our lives. So last week, Mariana Wakefield and I began to talk very specifically about how shame manifests itself in our lives as, as men and women and how we tend to hide behind our appearance or our abilities or our perfectionism or our performance in order to convince ourselves that we have value. Well, today, I want us to continue to look at the story of Saul through the lens of shame, because we're going to see some other ways that shame manifests itself in our lives. And again, this is for many of us here who don't realize, don't think we have a problem with shame. This is hopefully going to be instructive just to open our eyes to see how shame may be impacting our lives. Okay, so, so in 1 Samuel 15, where we just read God's rebuke of Saul, it's instructive to look at what led up to that. So earlier in the chapter, God had given Saul a very clear command. Because of the evil of the Amalekites, Saul and his army were to go in and destroy them completely, including the animals. But that's not what Saul did. He kept some of the animals as plunder. Now, initially, when Samuel the prophet confronted Saul, he, he, you know, he made some spiritual sounding excuse and all that. But, but a bit later in the chapter, Saul admits the real reason. Look, look with me at 1 Samuel 15, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men. So I gave in to them. Ah, 
See, there's the reason for his disobedience. I was afraid of the men. Saul was concerned about what the other men in the army would think of him if he didn't go along with their idea to take plunder, even though God had specifically told them not to do that. So this is one of the ways that shame impacts our lives. It's through this need for approval, this need for approval. Saul succumbed to peer pressure. He made decisions based on the approval of men, the men around him, rather than upon what God thought. So how often do you and I, how often do we make decisions or choices based on what other people will think? We want to look cool. We want to fit in. We don't want to be perceived in some negative way. So we choose to cheat on a test or to go to a party that won't be safe or to give in to our boyfriend's pressure to have sex or to lie about something at work or to laugh at a coworker's joke that's totally inappropriate and demeaning, but we laugh anyway because everyone else is laughing. I mean, how often are, are our social media posts focused on making ourselves look good in the eyes of other people? See, this is all rooted in shame. We don't feel secure enough in who we are in God and so we start looking to other people to meet that need. A friend of mine uh, recently said to me, he said, I've been drinking IPA beer for years. And the other day I finally had the courage to admit, I don't even like it. I don't like it. I don't like how it tastes. Honestly, he said, I would prefer to drink Coors Light, but I didn't want to admit that in front of my friends. I mean, his story made me wonder how many of our decisions are based upon what other people might think of us. See, this is what shame does to our hearts. This is what shame does in our hearts. If in the depths of my being, I feel like I am not acceptable just the way I am, then I need the approval of other people in order to feel good about myself. So I will make decisions based upon that need for approval. Now, beer choice is one thing, but, but before we know it, those decisions may involve much more significant things where we say no to what God wants for us because we're too interested in what other people will think of us. Shame is like this black hole. It's a black hole. It has this gravitational pull that needs to be filled with things that make us feel better, that make us feel more important and more valuable, but it's never satisfied. It is never satisfied. So comedian David Letterman, um, I read a quote of his where he was talking about kind of the life of a stand-up comic and, and what that was like night after night. Listen to what he says here. He admitted, every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best smelling version of yourself. If I can, and then he says, if I can make people enjoy the experience and have a high, higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Did, did, you hear, did you hear that line? If I can make people have a higher regard for me, for me, it makes me feel like an entire 
person. In other words, it makes me feel whole. It makes me feel whole. But the problem is it's never enough. Got to go out the next night, right? That this black hole never completely gets filled. The next night, got to do it again. See, this is why the Bible says that the fear of people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. See, that language is vivid. Fear of people, you know, this need for approval, all that fear of what people think, that ensnares us. It ensnares us. We start living for the approval of others or, or making decisions or unhealthy choices based on the, 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 these other people's opinions rather than on God's. And the impact of that, the impact of those choices over time is huge. It's huge. So let me just, let me just stop here before we go on real, and just take a moment. And I want to ask this question. I want you to think about this. Where are you making decisions based on a need to experience approval from other people. Think about that. Where in your life are you making decisions based on a need for the approval of others? Okay. Let's continue in the story. I'm going to be asking those questions periodically because I want us just to think about this in our own lives. Let's continue on here. Saul's story. A few chapters later, we're introduced to David. Now, in chapter 17, David, who was a young man, um, has this amazing victory over a giant named Goliath. It's an amazing story, right? And so then because he defeats Goliath, the whole, the whole army, the whole Israelite army defeats the Philistines. Everything is good. Or is it? First uh, Samuel 18, verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. I mean, so far, so good, right? Ladies are singing Saul's praises. This is good. Verse 7. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? See, Saul is jealous. He is envious. Sure, Saul has slain thousands, you know, which is impressive for a king. But now this young guy, this young guy has come on the scene and has been more effective in battle. And suddenly Saul's shame gets triggered again. These messages of I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. Once again, these messages rear their ugly head in Saul's heart. See, this is another way that shame manifests itself in our lives. It's through comparison, through comparison. We compare ourselves with other people, focusing on what they have that we don't have. See, shame is like a magnifying glass on our weaknesses and on everyone else's strengths. It's a magnifying glass on our own weaknesses and on everyone else's strengths. 
So Mariana shared last week how so often women compare themselves to the unreachable standard of the world in terms of physical beauty or in terms of their perception of other women's ability to keep it all together and be super mom and super wife and super employee and super organized and super successful and all that. And when that is the standard, shame easily kicks in. We, all, we just focus on what we're not doing. And we focus on, oh, whatever, what other women, in this case, are, are doing so well, right? That's what shame causes, magnifying glass on, my, on our weakness, magnifying glass on everyone else's strengths. This is such a huge issue for me personally. I, I, I remember when my kids were younger, we have four kids, when they were all young and at home, I would sometimes hear another dad or I'd read an article or something or I'd hear another dad talk about something they were doing as a family. And my immediate reaction, my immediate response inwardly would be, I should be doing that. I'm a terrible dad. My kids are missing out or whatever. It, it was just, it was my instinctive response to compare myself, to, to see this other person through this lens, compare myself and immediately, immediately conclude that I'm not doing a good job because I'm not doing that. This impacts so many areas of our lives, so many areas of our lives, our appearance, how we look, right? Our, our abilities, our, our uh, vocation. Man, when, again, being vulnerable, vulnerable here, when, when, when I hear about something cool that another church is doing and how God is blessing them, rather than celebrating that, isn't God good? That's amazing. Rather than celebrating that, just to be honest, my instinctive internal response is, why aren't we doing that? We need to step up our game. Uh, you know, I, I feel this, this intensity. I feel like this, almost this panic inside. Now, I'm, a, I'm aware. I realize what's happening. I'm just telling you what I'm, uh, what's going on inside of me. I'm aware, you know, I'm far not, enough along in this journey that I'm kind of aware what goes on in me, what triggers get here. But see, I, I know totally what's going on. See, the, this other church's success, wherever it is around the country or in the, wherever, the other church's success is hitting a shame nerve in me. It's hitting the shame nerve, this place in me that says, you're not enough. You're not, you're, not, you're not doing enough. You're a failure. For all I know, for all I know, that other church is looking at our church and thinking, man, we should be doing what they're doing. But, that, but seriously, that's the insidious nature of shame. See, shame magnifies what we're not, and it minimizes the glory and the uniqueness of who we are. That's what shame does. It magnifies the, the you know, the, 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 whatever we're not. It magnifies that. Oh, compared to that person, I'm not even close to that. It magnifies that. And then shame minimizes the glory and the uniqueness of who we are. So, so let me just ask a question again, just to stop for a moment. I'm going to give you a moment to think about this. Where do you compare yourself to others? in such a way that you feel bad about yourself? Is it in, in your, your looks, your abilities, your education, your parenting, your vocation, your income? Where are these places where you compare yourself to other people and then feel bad about yourself? Think about that for a moment. Okay, I want these questions just to continue to be kind of processing in our hearts here. Saul's jealousy, okay, it leads him to another particular response, which we just read about. The comparison caused something else to happen. And this is another characteristic of shame, and that is anger. Anger. 
Saul becomes angry. So angry that he begins trying to kill David in various ways. See, when these places of shame and insecurity and fear of failure, when those things get triggered, anger is often the result. Now, this anger can be channeled in all sorts of directions. Often, we direct our anger toward ourselves. toward ourselves. Do you ever pay attention to your self-talk? Seriously, do you ever pay attention to what you tell yourself? Do you ever, do you ever do you say things to yourself like, you idiot, you are so stupid. What are you doing? Why can't you get this right? I, I played a lot of tennis during a particular season of my life. And I remember one day just realizing, just stopping and realizing that when, whenever I would hit a bad shot, how often I berated myself and sort of cursed myself with my words. You jerk. Come on, you can do better. What's wrong with you? Just this constant self-talk. See, shame causes us to be our own worst critic. We become our own worst critic. And it ends up, it can fuel this self-hatred, this anger toward ourselves, which can lead to depression and discouragement. But it also, like Saul, can cause us to take our anger out on others. And this is, this is something we don't understand a lot of times, but a lot, you know, the, the anger here causes us, self-hatred here causes us to take that out on others. So when shame is at work in us, when we feel inadequate, when we're comparing, we feel like a failure as a mom or as a Christian or whatever, that anger comes out. Um, you know, we spread lies and gossip about people that we don't like or people we're sort of jealous of, or we yell at our kids when it's not about them at all. It's because we're comparing ourselves with that family or whatever. Um, or we snap at, a per at, at the person on the phone or we let bitterness fester so that we start to feel contempt toward our spouse. Just kind of let bitterness fester so we feel contempt towards them and we end up withdrawing from them or constantly being critical of them. I remember reading about a marriage uh, where the husband was distant and kind of brooding all the time and sort of, sort of de demeaning toward his wife and kind of passive aggressive and indifferent and negative, just all that stuff. And someone who was familiar with this marriage said to a friend, I don't think he likes his wife. And the other person said, I don't think he likes himself. That's what shame does. We bounce between these feelings of, I hate me, I hate you. And it will destroy our relationships. And a lot of times we have no idea what's going on, the dynamic that's causing us. We just feel this anger inside. We have no idea the root cause of this. I mean, relationships, honestly, relationships are kind of like a mirror, if you think about it. They offer, our relationships often say more about us than they say about this other person. So we have this mirror in this relationship. Right, So when we get angry at someone, maybe it's our spouse or someone else, we get angry at someone in a relationship, the mirror shatters, right? The mirror shatters. And then when we put the pieces all back together, we like the image we see even less. We don't like that person. Our shame just increases. But the mirror we're looking at is us. It's us. Often, again, we have no idea how shame is negatively impacting our relational world. 
So I was listening to Dr. Brene Brown uh, do a talk on men and women and shame. And one of the, one of the men that she had interviewed, taught, just she was trying to get a feel for how shame impacts, she knew how it impacted women, how does it impact men? And so she interviewed hundreds of men. And, and she, one of the interviews, the men she interviewed told a story. He was just sharing his story. He told a story about how 20 years earlier, when he was a freshman in high school, he went out for football. And on the first day of practice, the coach looked at him and said, get on the line. And this young freshman had never played football before. So he didn't know exactly what was going on. So he kind of hesitated a little bit. You know, the coach, like, get on the line. He hesitated. And the coach kind of sensed his, his fear. And he said very loudly in front of the whole team, get on the line. Don't be a wimp. But he didn't say wimp. He said something else starts with a P. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what he said. And so, so this young man, this freshman in high school, got on the line and he plowed over the guy in front of him. Now, as he was reflecting back on that incident 20 years earlier, this 35-year-old man said this. In that moment, in that moment, I learned that it is not okay to be afraid. I took my fear and I turned it into rage. And I've been plowing over people for the last 20 years of my life. See, how many of us are carrying this anger inside? Maybe from 20 years ago. We're carrying this anger completely unaware of how it is destroying our relationships. It's destroying us. It's destroying those around us. I just read a statistic that one in four married Christian women have been victims of abuse in their marriage. Christian marriages. One in four women have been victims of abuse. Now, when we hear the abuse word, we think, oh, physical abuse, and guys say, oh, I haven't ever hit my wife. You know, uh, it's horrible. Physical abuse is horrible. But there are many other forms of abuse. See, ultimately, abuse in a marriage is about power. It's about power. It's about using words, finances, control to degrade or diminish another person so that she has no voice, so that she feels like she has no value. She doesn't feel safe. She doesn't feel respected. And if she ever brings the issue up, the husband gets mad, right? And either withdraws or yells. So husbands, just a moment here. Husbands, the last time I checked, our, our number one job is to protect our wife's heart. It is to lay down our lives for her. If our wife doesn't feel safe in our home, that's on us. If your wife doesn't feel safe in your home, that's on you, husbands. Women, let me just say, if you're afraid in your marriage, if you're afraid, if you feel continually demeaned and that you have no value, would you please reach out for help? Please reach out for help. Make an appointment here. You can call the church, Cindy Chavez, our pastor of care and prayer ministries. And folks, it is not, when you're in a marriage like this, emotionally destructive marriage like this, it is not just a matter, oh, we just need some marriage tips and we just need to go to a marriage seminar. No, no. When there are issues of emotional destruction, Band-Aid solutions don't work. They don't work. This is a heart issue. Anger is often rooted in 
shame. It's rooted in insecurity. And we see this all around us. I'm not going to name any names or anything in public sphere, but so often, and we know this in relationships around us, when you look under the surface of people who power up and who always need to be in control and who always need to be right, when you look under the surface of people like that, what you discover is a person who is deeply insecure. They are deeply insecure. A person who is little in their own eyes. I mean, think about this. Had Saul been a healthy person with a whole heart, he could have celebrated David's successes, right? He's an older guy. Here's a younger guy coming along, up and coming. Wow, a lot of talent. He could have mentored him. He could have poured into him. They could have been an amazing team. But Saul's shame wouldn't let that happen. His shame wouldn't let it happen. All he could do was focus on how to kill David, how to remove this obstacle that was standing in the way of his own glory and image, or that remove this, honestly, it was to remove this obstacle that was continually poking on his shame. That's what he felt like he needed to do, to fix the situation. It wasn't to look at his own anger. No, it was to get rid of whatever was poking these insecure places in me. So let me again, just kind of stop for a moment here. Ask this question as you think about your life. Where is anger surfacing in your life? And what is fueling that anger? What, what role is shame playing in your anger toward yourself or toward other people? These are really important questions. And I know I'm just giving you a moment to think about it, but man, it's worth taking time this week. These questions, it, don't, don't let shame destroy your most important relationships. Don't let shame do that. That is one of the ways that shame manifests itself in Saul's life that I want to highlight for us. When I read, when I read Saul's story, you know, it, it sort of feels like the movie Unstoppable, um, you know, this out of control train that just keeps gaining momentum and, and you know it's headed for a very bad ending. You know, that's how Saul's story feels. It just feels like he's just out of control. Um, so Saul, if you read on in the story, Saul spends years years trying to kill David. Chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of 1 Samuel chronicles this totally irrational pursuit. And at one point, David, I think it happens a couple of times actually, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. He's in a cave and Saul's there and he has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he chooses not to. And so when Saul finds out that David was actually close enough to kill him, but spared his life, Saul wept aloud and said, you, David, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. He admits his wrongdoing and he goes home. But soon enough, Saul is at it again. He's, he's trying to kill David. His whole life, his whole identity became wrapped up in trying to get rid of David, hoping that that would solve Saul's problem and make his life easier. Now, it is this vivid picture. This is this vivid picture of how Saul's shame eventually turns into an obsession. An obsession. See, this is another manifestation of shame. It's addiction. Addiction. 
Why do we find ourselves increasingly needing alcohol or drugs or pornography or gambling or comfort food or binge shopping or whatever? Why, why do we keep needing these things? It's, it's because these things help numb the pain in our hearts. They help numb our feelings of shame and inadequacy. All, all those messages that tell us you're not enough, you, you'll, you're a loser, you're ugly, you're stupid, all of that. We get tired of living under the shadow of those, those messages. I do. I mean, we get tired of living under the shadow of shame. So we start looking for anything that will help us feel better, even temporarily. So we give in. And then afterwards, we feel bad for giving in. Like Saul, we're repentant for a little while, and then shame kicks in, and he's at it again. And that's what we do. We find ourselves once again looking for relief. And before we know it, we are freely choosing this destructive pathway of addiction. We're choosing to give in to this thing, even though we know that it's destroying us. Even though we know it is robbing us of joy and contentment and freedom, we're giving in anyway. I mean, addiction, when you think about it rationally, addiction makes no rational sense. It makes no rational sense when you think about it. Why would, why would I keep choosing to do something when I know it's destroying me? Why would I do that? Well, it's because there's a deeper issue going on. We're trying to fill this black hole of shame. We're trying to medicate our self-hatred. We're, we're trying to feel better about ourselves, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Not only that, think about all the time and energy and effort that Saul invested in his attempt to kill David. Years now think about this. He was king of Israel. He spent years trying to ki kill David, which means he wasn't around to be king. He wasn't providing leadership and influence where, where he could have and where God was calling him to be. No, no, no. He wasn't doing that. He was off chasing David again. See, these addictions that we battle, they can become so consuming that they cause us to neglect the things that God is calling us to. I mean, pornography usage, just one example, pornography usage causes us to withdraw from engaging in healthy relationships with our spouse. We don't even want to anymore. Don't want to engage with people, with our spouse or our friends or our parents or, or, or our children. Pornography steals our hearts so that we no longer want to engage. It consumes more of our lives and our hearts. That's just what it does. A social media addiction causes us to neglect our children or other responsibilities or relationships, the things that we really care about, but we're over, we keep getting pulled over here. I mean, we've all seen it and we've probably done it ourselves. We've been that family at the restaurant where every family member is looking at their own phones and not interacting with each other around a dinner table. We can get so caught up in our own need to feel better and medicate our insecurity that these activities, these addictions begin to take over our lives and we miss out on the beauty and the wonder and the depth and the joy and the adventure and the life of what God offers us. And by the way, we, we, we do have a support group for guys wanting to break free from pornography and for wives who are married to someone who is battling pornography. Um, there's an email that's going to come up here, Restoration CCC Greeley at gmail.com. <clears throat> Anonymous email, you can email that and um, there will be more uh, uh, connection will be made with you. So as we have seen today and last week, so many of the struggles and the problems and the difficulties that we all face today are ultimately rooted in shame. 
Who would have thought, right? They're rooted in shame. And if we don't realize that, we will be, we will be trying band-aid solutions to our problems. You know, we'll make promises to do better. You know, we'll set goals. We'll read books about how to stop being angry or how to stop comparing ourselves or whatever, how to break free from our addictions or whatever. But they don't work because we're not looking at the root problem. We're not honestly looking at our shame. Why? Because we're ashamed of our shame. We are Let's just admit it. We're ashamed of our shame. No one wants to look closely at their shame because it's a place of shame. But here's the deal. I am convinced that Jesus wants us to go there. Jesus wants us to go there. Jesus doesn't want us to run from our shame or to hide our shame or ignore our shame. No, he wants, uh, what he wants for us is to experience him in our shame. To experience him in our shame. He is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of your shame. He doesn't turn away from your shame. No, he wants to be with you in it. See, that's the invitation he gives to, uh, uh, to all of us today and every day. Jesus wants to meet us in our shame. He wants to show himself to you in your shame. So don't run from that. Don't run from that. Don't be in a hurry to get out of that place. Let him be with you in that place. Let him speak to you in that place. Let him love you in that place. Because remember, Jesus took our shame by dying on the cross. He has felt what shame feels like and he wants to be with you and with me in that place. That's the beginning of transformation and freedom from our shame. All right, let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, I sense that you've already been doing this and we ask you to continue to open our eyes to see these places where shame has been at work, our need for approval of other people. And so we do things we know we don't even want to do or you don't want us to do, need for approval. Our, our comparison with other people and we look at what they have or what they're like, what they look like or what they can do compared to that particular area in us and we feel ashamed about that. Or maybe it's anger, God, this area of anger or, or our um, anger at ourselves, anger at other people, maybe even our spouse. It's rooted in this place of I hate me, I hate you. Or maybe it's this place of addiction. Open our eyes to see And to feel our shame. We have run from it for so long. We've stuffed it. We've tried to hide from it. Let's just feel it. And own it. And then what I want you to do is to invite Jesus in 
to that shame. You don't have to hide it from him. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of your shame. Open, no more hiding. Open your heart to him and just acknowledge Jesus. I feel shame about this. So let's just kind of sit in this place for a moment here. So Lord Jesus, we welcome you into these places that we've been running from, these places we've been hiding or stuffing. We welcome you into these places of shame and pain and all of that. And we pray, Lord, we pray. I I pray right now just that this is kind of a beginning of this journey even for the next few weeks as we continue to talk about how to be free from shame, Lord, that this is a beginning, this, this initial step of just inviting you into these places. And so I thank you for what you're already doing in people's hearts. And would you continue that work, Lord? Would you continue that work as we, as we worship in just a moment, as we spend some time thinking about these questions that we've been asking in this message, Lord, I pray you would go with us where and just lead us where we need to go to explore where shame is at work in us. And I pray for the courage to do that for each one of us, God. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for being the presence of Jesus to us, for walking with us in this And thank you for the ultimate goal. It's wholeheartedness. It is to be free, to walk in freedom from shame. So take us there, God. So so we want to continue in this spirit of prayer and response and worship. We've prayerfully chosen a few songs to kind of just to give words to some of the things in our hearts. And, uh, but don't feel like you have to sing. If you're still in this place processing some of these things, man, go there with Jesus, right? But we want to just continue to, to give opportunity to respond to the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to begin by standing. If, if at some point you want to sit down, that's totally cool. Or you want to stay seated right now, that's cool. But let's, for most of us here, begin by standing. Jesus, set us free right now to worship you. We love you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being with us in our shame. We love you, God.